There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in Tampa Grant, Michael Biden. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon, retired NYPD sergeant from Manhattan North Homicide Squad, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. And with me today is retired NYPD detective and straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. How are you doing today, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy. How about you? I'm doing well. You know, this, this case is, um, I think, it's sort of baffling a lot of people, uh, if you've ever worked homicides before, having a case that's two weeks old is nothing to get crazy about. I think it's just the magnitude of this case, the size of this case, the amount of press that it's been getting. Everyone and no one is an expert in this case, but everyone wants to put their two cents in in regards to what's going on. Uh, 14 days after it happened, the murder of four University of Idaho students remains a source of grief for the Moscow community and this whole region in general. And it remains frustratingly unsolved. See, the everyone is frustrated that it's unsolved, but in the homicide world, it's not uh, unusual for this to happen. And in this case, of course, there is tons of evidence, tons of forensic evidence that we are not privy to the results of, nor are we privy to the interior interviews and interrogation of suspects, person of interest, whatever you want to call them. So we're just privy to, to lots of rumors and lots of talking heads on television that also don't know the inside uh, investigative um, information that the police, the FBI, and the state police have. The Moscow Police Department has released some pieces of information about the deaths of Ethan Chapin, Zaina Canodal, Madison Mogan and Kaylee Goncalves. Some details being kept under wraps and, and other crucial information about what transpired is still being sought by investigators as they search for the perpetrator of these grisly killings. And the timeline is, is starting to change a little bit because they're getting tons of still photos and video information with timestamps on them. So they were originally saying um, that Goncalves and Rathdrum returned home at 1.40. I think now they're changing it to 1.56, which is, you know, it's it's significant. Or they, I, Initially, I think they said 1.45. So Yeah, 1.45. Uh, so it's 11 minutes different. Is that significant? Yes, it's significant. So as, as you can tell, they're getting up-to-date information, and it's changing uh, – the timeline. One of the things that we're also, um, and many people are talking about, and we have it as rumor, and it may, it may be fact, that Kaylee had a stalker. Now, they're not confirming that. That is still at the, what we would consider, rumor stage, and unless we get it from the horse's mouth, which would be the investigator's. Does she did she or does she in fact? But they that is a piece of information 
that they would be holding very, very close to the vest. And the best people or persons to ask in regards to whether or not she has a stalker, of course, are her friends. Phil. Billy, uh, there's a couple of things I wanted to just point out. Number one, um, I was watching uh, news accounts, uh, cable news earlier, and they're talking about if the case goes past Christmas time, they're going to pull back resources and it's going to become a cold case. That is complete and total nonsense. A cold case is when it's not being worked on every day. This case is going to be worked on every day. I'm very sure till it's solved. I, I can't even believe that they're talking about it being a cold case. This case is two weeks old. I heard another report yesterday saying it's three weeks old. It's two weeks today. And the case, listen, uh, homicide investigation, as you pointed out, Billy, earlier, is very, very complicated. It's not something that's simple. Uh, it's very complicated, especially in a case like this. Now, listen, as time goes on, theories might change a little bit, like I was talking about with you earlier in the day uh, before we went on the air. I said that the fact that initially I didn't think it could be a serial killer. However, based on the, uh, the time frame getting longer and longer, that possibility, the percentage might go up just a little bit. I'm thinking a very small percentage that it's a serial killer. Now, initially, I was thinking it was going to be someone close in the circle of these people's lives. Now, the police are saying publicly, not once, twice, numerous times, that there was someone that was targeted. They have information that they're not re revealing that shows that one of those victims was targeted. It sounds like the other three were collateral damage. So they have... Uh, as they stated in the press conference just the other day, 103 pieces of evidence that was recovered from the crime scene. Now, there's going to be so many other parts of this investigation that will lead to the killer. They have to identify the killer first. They're, apparently, uh, it doesn't seem like they have a killer identified or a suspect identified. So they have to come up with uh, uh, a suspect. They have to then compare all of the evidence to see if it locks that person into the crime scene. There's a lot of work being done on it. Everybody just has to take a deep breath, have some patience. If you watch cable news, it's wall to wall on, on most of the channels, the local news as well. But there's a lot of misinformation being put out there. It was the stories about being uh, the, the victims being uh, gagged and tied was completely erroneous, not true. So again, we have to stick to the facts of this case. This is a difficult investigation, obviously. It's very difficult. But I have faith in the system that we have, the investigators, the FBI, the local police, the state police. They're going to come up with a suspect in this case. It, talking about it being a cold case after Christmas is complete and utter nonsense, Billy. No, I agree with you. Uh, one of the things also, you know, there's so much um, press coverage on this that it's almost like the press is demanding, demanding inside investigative information. And guess what? You're not privy to that, but I'll make another statement about that. Early on in the investigation, very early, the first, second day, the police made some erroneous statements that hurt the the press, you know, the uh, communication with the public and the press and that, that no one else had anything to worry about. This was a talk. They should have never said that. And that made them look amateurish. And it also made them look like they didn't really know what they were talking about. Because if there's a killer still out there that just butchered four people, yes, the community, yes, the college community, yes, the people that live in that community, they have something to worry about. Till they put handcuffs Agreed. on this guy, everyone has something to worry about. So when they said that, that sort of ruined their credibility. They pulled that back, but it's sometimes difficult to throw something out there and pull it back.
You know, Billy, at the surface, when you first walk into that crime scene, it could seem, you know, it's a college uh, dorm that's off campus, basically. I mean, it's not a dorm, but it's a college home that's rented off campus. There's a bunch of college kids. It's a Sunday morning from Saturday night. You're thinking, all right, maybe there was a party. Things went awry. So that's perhaps why they may have made those statements. Again, uh, inexperience in homicide investigation. It hasn't been a homicide in that area in about seven years. So again, I'm not knocking them. However, it does seem like maybe they put some uh, information out there that really wasn't correct. Uh, one other thing I want to mention, I just watched on the news that the students will be going back tomorrow. Uh, um, any of the students that don't want to come back to the campus uh, are being offered to complete their uh, their studies online. So I think that's a good thing because let's face it, if I had a child that goes to that school and this killer is still out there, my kid's not going back to that area. Absolutely. You know, Fox had a pretty good uh, report. They have a homicide investigator. That's one of their reporters that was on the scene. And I think based on just him suggesting it, they yes. expanded the crime scene. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's something that the, obviously should be the decision of the investigators. But I think that um, they're going to do that because of that. Let me play this. All right, let's bring in former homicide detective and Fox News contributor Ted Williams, just back from Moscow, Idaho, and attorney Brian Claypool. Gentlemen, thank you both for joining us today. Ted, let me start with you because you were actually on the ground in Moscow for several days, and so you have a real sense of what investigators are doing there, one of which it seems is trying to rule out theories. So now there's this revelation of another stabbing of a couple in Salem, Oregon, not too far away from a couple of years ago, one person survived and police, as you heard, said they're looking into that. But I want you to listen to police about the notion that one of the students, Kaylee, had a stalker. Let's listen. We have heard mention that Kaylee stated she may have had a stalker. Detectives have been looking into that and to this point have been unable to corroborate the statement, although we continue to seek information and tips regarding that report. So, Ted, some of the students on campus were talking about that. They've been unable to corroborate it, as you heard. So do you think they're ruling out that theory altogether? Well, I don't think they're ruling out any of the theories, uh, Anita. I think they are following up on any and all leads. Uh, they're following up on the Oregon lead. I'm sure they are still checking out the information concerning the stalker. But one of the things that they've said very clearly at the early on in this investigation is that the uh, perpetrator or perpetrators had a target. It has come out as late as this afternoon that uh, authorities uh, allegedly have told one of the fathers that one of the individuals was uh, being stalked there. So if they, uh, well, I stand to be corrected, not being stalked, but targeted. And so as a result of that, uh, they know a great deal more than they're letting on to the public. And I believe that sooner or later, but very soon, that they will be able to resolve this by forensic and information that the public will be able to give them. Wow. Okay. Well, I guess that's good news that uh, they, you think that they might be able to make some discoveries soon. Um, Brian, let me ask you, we're hearing today about another murder back from 1969, more than 50 years ago, another University of Idaho student who was murdered while working in a diner nearby. Here's a quote from the Lewiston Tribune. This is a newspaper that's not too far away. They cover Moscow, Idaho. Uh, they say a young waitress, a killer never found during Sunday evening of December 28th, 
um, after all customers had left and 18-year-old waitress Janice Lynn Foyles was preparing to close, a yet-to-be-explained tragedy struck. Foyles, a Moscow high school graduate and freshman at the University of Idaho, was found bludgeoned to death behind the cafe counter. Now, Brian, this was a long time ago, but as a lawyer, do you oh, rule this out, out or do you need to follow up and find out what happened mm -hmm. with that case? No one was ever arrested. Hey, Anita, great to be back with you and happy Thanksgiving weekend. Thank Look, these other murders that you're talking about years ago, I think uh, are a distraction. No offense to those. 100%. This lawyer hit it on the head. 100% this is a distraction. If they don't match up with modus operandi, don't, they don't match up with evidence, let's put them on the back burner. People, I personally don't feel this is a serial killing. I feel this, again... One of the people, one of the persons, and apparently Kaylee Goncalves was targeted. The other three were uh, collateral damages. There, I hate to use that term. They weren't. They just happened to be in the house. This is my opinion. But so many people are jumping to this is a uh, a serial killer. And if the if the evidence doesn't match up to that, and you can uh, you can close that door rather quickly. And if you don't do it, as he says, this is a distraction, and it's. It's going to cost you a lot of investigative man hours when you should be focusing elsewhere. Those murders, but look, like Ted said, this was personal. This heinous murder of four girls was highly personal. So I doubt that this relates to a murder five years ago, 10 years ago, or 30 years ago. I think there are two things that are concerning the community in our nation. A, the lack of transparency in the investigation, and B, do we have enough resources to investigate this? Right, Anita? I've heard there have been over 70 or 80 interviews. I've heard there have been over 700 tips. Does this local police department have the resources to process all the tips? Where is the FBI? Are they involved? What are they investigating? What does the medical forensics tell you? For example, there was a report that there were defensive wounds. That's crucial, Anita. Why? Because there's likely skin tissue under the nails of one or more of the victims. That's important because you can take that tissue, put it in a DNA database nationwide. Potentially, this, this killer might be in that database and you've got a match. What about the phone records of the roommates? Have those been examined? I find it odd that a roommate calls eight hours later and says, oh, hi, uh, I think we have an unconscious body. Wouldn't they be hysterical? Wouldn't they be screaming? What, was there blood spatter on any of the roommates' clothing? Have those clothes been examined? Those things need to be analyzed, Anita, and yeah. the community, more importantly, needs to hear about that so they can have an assurance that the police are really digging in yeah. deep and that they can feel some sense well, of security. We, they do need to know about it. Classes resume on Monday. We do know the FBI is involved, so hopefully we get some of these questions answered soon. Ted seems to think that we will. Uh, we will follow the story and we will see. But gentlemen, got to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining. Phil. Billy, I think it's going to be one of three things in my mind. I think it's going to be someone from the inner circle of one of these individuals, perhaps all four of them, someone from the outer circle, meaning someone that they could have had a problem with, uh, really not friends with on a daily basis, perhaps had some type of an interaction. And then the third scenario would be what you, and I don't think it's this either, would be the completely random serial killer attack that's that, that obviously uh, picked them for whatever reason, uh, doesn't know them. Uh, and that, you know, tends to be when a case goes on and on that it's, it's very random. 
you know, usually in an investigation like this, if it's someone close in the inner circle, like let's say it was one of the friends that just went crazy, uh, I think we would have, have already had that arrest. So I'm going to go with the outer circle, uh, not so much very, very close to the victims, but someone that knew them, someone that had maybe some type of an interaction. That's what I'm thinking at this point. As far as the stalker thing goes, the stalker may or may not be involved in this. So if there is a stalker, they need to get that person, talk to that person, find out what their whereabouts uh, were on the night of this incident, see if they have any kind of wounds on their hands or anything like that. May have already been done. Uh, it sounds like they haven't established for sure if there even was a stalker. So again, that may or may not be relevant to this investigation. Definitely needs to be looked at. They need to establish, yes, there was someone that was stalking one of these individuals, or no, that's not true. They need. They may already have that, and they're just not releasing it. Aslan Mora, thank you so much for the $10 Super Chat. Could the police know right away when they walked in who was killed first, and how would the police know? No, they would not know right away. That would be something that a very skilled Crime scene detective would be able to determine two yeah. things like blood spatter, uh, positioning of the bodies, the stab wounds, uh, resistance, you know, people that, that fought back. That would have to be determined. Upon walking in, I don't know anyone, and I know some talented crime scene investigators, you know, Ed Wallace that's on Duty Ron's show. I don't think he'd be able to tell that immediately. He may be able to figure that out from the crime scene evidence, but not, not immediately. Great. But uh, Aslan, great, great question. Great Park question. Warrior sure. Mama, uh, thank you for the 499 Super Chat and your experience. Have you ever seen where they have told the public they've cleared people that they really haven't just to keep them close? I don't think the police want, want to lie in this circumstance. I think they want to be transparent, but you, you have to realize the Moscow police, they haven't had a murder in seven years. Part of the whole investigative uh, team, have you, is being able to have someone to present the information to the press and the public to satisfy them. Look, this murder, a quadruple murder right off the University of Idaho campus is enough to throw the entire community into panic. And oh. apparently it's doing a pretty good job of that. So that's why how the police and how the spokespersons for the police are so, so important in letting the public know, being as transparent as they can be without letting uh, really crucial investigative information go. That is so, so important. There's definitely a uh, obligation by law enforcement to keep uh, the public to community at large uh, up to date on obvious uh, dangers. Uh, if there's a, a, a a serial killer out there and targeting just uh, randomly, then the public has a right to know about that. I don't think we're at that stage at this point, but there is someone out there that killed these four people. And obviously if they can do that, they're a danger to the community. So I think that, like you said, Billy, you know, in, in the NYPD, we have the, uh, the uh, deputy commissioner of public information. They have the office that is the liaison with all the reporters and all the news media outlets. And they tend to have the working relationship. Perhaps in this uh, locale, there wasn't uh, that type of, of a situation, but I think the state police and the FBI being involved now, they're, they're, they're on top of the game. The, the latest press conference, I think, was pretty well done. I think it was pretty informative. They gave uh, as much information as they can. However, they, they would not 
reveal why they believe that one of the individuals was targeted. I'm okay with that. They shouldn't reveal everything. You want to keep as much information close to the vest as possible in homicide investigation, uh, as you know, Billy. So again, uh, I'm okay with all of that. I just think that, um, you know, maybe in the beginning, there could have been a little bit better, uh, you know, uh, information given out to the public. It was perhaps a little bit too quick to call it targeted, uh, personal, uh, crime of passion. Doesn't seem like it's going in that direction at this point. You know, folks, I just wanted to put this slide up there. That's the slide of um, allegedly blood pouring out. I, I've heard from numerous sources that that, in fact, was not blood. So this could be misinformation also and erroneous, and it caused a lot of people to be upset uh, in regards to this. I, I haven't heard specifically the police talk about it. I think I read it in a report, but it apparently was there prior to this incident. So which would be like the fact that it's not, it's not blood. Um, you know, folks, what we have talked about a lot on this, this case, of course, what's going to solve this case in my mind is going to be science. We spoke about it numerous times, forensic evidence, the chance that the perpetrator in this case cut himself, I would say a 95% is the perpetrator's blood in the crime scene. There's an outstanding chance that it is. Does that take a while to discern his blood from the other blood? Yes, it could be commingled. That's a police word, commingled, right? Um, it could it could be not in a, a large amount. Could it just dripping? And but they, I I'm pretty confident that they would find it. Think about it, Billy. Think about it for a second. When when the uh, crime scene investigators are collecting blood, you know, blood is red. It's all the same color. You, you're not going to know what's so where they collect it is going to be obviously the most important. And again, like you said, the chances that he cut himself are going to be very good. However, collecting it and then, like you said, it's commingled. It has to go to the lab. It has to be discerned that there's two different types of blood in this specific uh, piece of evidence that they're going to recover or this blood sample that they're going to recover. So again, that's a great point, Billy. You know, the other thing is that, is this the perpetrator's first time out? Is this his first crime he's committed and he commits four murders? It happens. It actually happens. Someone, it's their first uh, time they commit a crime and it's a quadruple murder. Therefore, one of the things that would tell us is that his DNA sample it may not be in the DNA database, the CODIS sure. database. So you could have some unidentified blood or unidentified DNA at the scene. One of the girls, uh, Kaylee Gonzalez, apparently fought back fiercely. Could she have the perpetrator's DNA underneath her fingernails? That's all part of the autopsy process. That's a checklist thing that every pathologist would do. So... If he's not in the DNA database, again, we could have all the forensic evidence, but we're not going to be able to identify the perpetrator there. Digital evidence, so, so important and so voluminous. When we talk about a case like this, four victims right there, four cell phones, who are they calling? Who's texting them? Where have they been? What's the cell sites they hit? So you can't even imagine how voluminous all of that, but yeah. A digital footprint. So, so important. We mentioned geofencing. If they can run the cell site nearest to that house and find out every single digital device that was on at the time of the murders, 
and potentially if the perpetrator had his cell phone with him. You, you, you know, that sounds stupid to most, but a lot of times people just don't think and they'll bring their cell phone. And it's like, oh, I'm going to, this was premeditated, but he may still have brought his cell phone to the scene. How did he get to the scene? I've asked this question numerous times. Did he walk or did he take a car? That's so important and so important. The reasons that the police are still asking every day, they said video and still photos with no one in them are just as important as digital evidence and still photos with someone in them. It's because they want to look at timelines. Who was at this location at this time? Or was there no one at this location at this time? So they're asking for that every single day. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you're not subscribed and you like real crime stories from a police perspective, please go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell. If you want to contribute to us, we have a Patreon with three different levels, and we also have a YouTube channel membership with five different levels, and you see a lot of the folks in the chat with the green font. They're part of our YouTube family. Phil, anything to add to that? Yeah, I want to talk about the evidence. Now, they talked about 103 pieces of evidence being recovered from inside the crime scene. So now we're going to have possible fingerprints. We're going to have possible blood DNA. We could have touch DNA. Touch DNA is if you touch a surface, it could be, uh, a, a, if it's a, a sexual nature, it could be the inside of clothing. It could be on a surface, a surface that's smooth and, and you leave uh, touch DNA. There's going to be a lot of different evidence that can be compared into this. And then we also have eyewitness uh, uh, evidence. Now, eyewitness evidence is if someone saw a person that can identify the person. However, once they uh, identify a suspect, there might be someone that doesn't even realize that they were a witness to could have seen this person at that time in the morning, uh, two weeks ago, uh, maybe with blood on their clothing. Perhaps they could come up with a story. I was out hunting. I wasn't supposed to be hunting. I was poaching and I had to skin the animal or whatever the case may be. There's going to be a lot of different evidence that will tie the perpetrator to this crime. They talked about 103 pieces of evidence being collected. And we just talked about how the DNA has to be discerned, whether or not it's victims uh, DNA or whether it's perpetrated DNA, commingled blood. Um, and then Bill, you talked about the cell site information. A cell tower will give every cell phone that was in that area at that time. Now, it's a lot of different cell phones. Perhaps the, the murderer could have said, gotten there by a vehicle and left his cell phone in his car and went into the location. However, it would still show that that cell phone was in the area. How close was he where he parked his vehicle if he came by a vehicle? Probably not that far. You're not going to want to park a vehicle when you're going to commit such a heinous crime so far away. You want to keep it close by to make a quick escape. Uh, one other thing I want to point out, it looks to me, based on the configuration of that house and the fact that the first floor is where the other surviving uh, uh, occupants of that home were. I think he went in through the back of the location. Uh, the second floor may have been where he encountered the first two victims, third floor encountered the second two. And again, we don't know if the target, because they're saying there was a target, was on that second level or that third level. That would be interesting to try and figure out. And again, did he go in the same location uh, go in through the same uh, location that he went out from, or did he go out through a different location? All of those things are going to be very, very important from the crime scene investigators. You know, one of the things that uh, we've been speaking about also is uh, the fact that there's almost a, a one, well, I think a very, I'm not going to use 100% as a number, but there's 
a very good chance that the perpetrator is from and lives in this area. I agree. That's, that's called geographic profiling because, again, the police has said that someone here was specifically targeted. So he must have encountered a Kaylee, if, if that's true about uh, the alleged stalker or someone that was targeted, he must have encountered her in, in the neighborhood. So therefore, he must live in the neighborhood or just outside the neighborhood or have business in the neighborhood. Either he goes to a bar or a restaurant or he works in the neighborhood. So all of those things are reasons to look at people in this neighborhood. I also wanted to mention, and this goes back to my, of course, um, police days, is don't forget the criminal community. The criminal community knows a lot about things happening. I was just going to bring that up, Billy. It's in the community. And they have to be brought in. If they're on parole, bring them in. That You don't have to ask them to come in. You grab the parole officer, bring him in. Bring in all your parolees. You, you question them. Because a lot of times these guys are looking to sell something too. Sell the remaining time by giving good information. Right? So the debriefing all the people arrested talking again to the criminal element is so important again because they know things that regular ordinary people don't know because they're traveling in those circles so i hope that the moscow police and the fbi and the state police are debriefing sex offenders in the area bring them in chances are they're on parole bring them in and let's speak to these people let's speak to all of the criminal element that we can bring in for this case. Billy, on two separate occasions in my time in a 6-0 precinct, a 6-0 squad in Coney Island, we had two major investigations solved by a liaison between the prosecutor's office and the jail. There were people that were uh, newly incarcerated that were looking to get their bail lowered so they could get out, gave very specific and very important information on two major investigations that led to uh, arrests and convictions in both of those cases. So again, you're making a great point. The the people that are in the game, so to speak, criminals, they hear things, they see things, they know things. They may want to trade off that information for a lighter sentence or just uh, a lot of times you have informants that are paid. So again, uh, all of that stuff should be queried. All the people in the area that have criminal records should be queried. And every person that law enforcement is talking to in this investigation should be asked to submit to a DNA swab, uh, no matter how little uh, they're involved in this investigation or if they're a major suspect, everybody should have a DNA swab taken in this case, because again, you have a thing called familiar DNA uh, with genealogy, which we've had someone on the show that talks about genealogy. If you have someone that's close to that person, you can connect that to the uh, the actual murderer. So again, everybody that they're speaking to, it's a simple swab of the inside of your cheek with a Q-tip and uh, they put it into a, a controlled tube and there should be a, a list of everyone's DNA in this case. Phil, there's also something, and for our listeners, there's something called elimination fingerprints and also elimination DNA. So anyone that's allowed or had permission and authority to be in that house, we take their fingerprints to eliminate their fingerprints from, from per potential perpetrator fingerprints. Also, we, they may need to take elimination DNA. Schmitty, you gentlemen are a great team. I love the detailed breakdown you give. Thanks for keeping us focused on the facts. Thank you, 
So four L's is interesting too. You know, the other show that was the first time I heard um, the four L's. What was yeah, it? Yeah, uh, I never heard that either. Bill. Loathing, uh, love. Lust. It kind of makes sense. It makes sense. Loofer or something. Loofer. I don't know the last one. That was about stands, money. Stands for money or greed. Yeah, that was the first time I ever heard that. I, you know, funny. Uh, it seemed like a lot of people knew about that. I don't know. Well, maybe we weren't reading the, the same novels. Um, you know, one of the other things I wanted to point out, Billy, that in 85%, I think, is the actual statistic. 85% of all homicides, the perpetrator is known to the victim. So we got to go with that uh, with that uh, statistic at this point, too. You know, Bill? No, absolutely. And, Phil, another statistic that comes out, almost 80 to 90% of all murders are committed by males. Because yes. when people start talking, oh, this could be a female, well, that's not what the statistics are telling us. The statistics are telling us that this is a male. And the attack sort of tells us it's a male. The targeted nature of it tells, tells us it's a male. Let me play a little bit of this. Good afternoon. I'm Captain Roger Lanier with the Moscow Police Department. I want to assure you, first off, that the loss of Zana, Kaylee, Madison, and Ethan remains the highest priority for the Moscow Police Department. We will continue putting all of our resources into investigating and solving these murders. Investigators are prepared to work through the Thanksgiving holiday to continue their efforts. I also want to express our sincere appreciation to the Idaho State Police, the FBI, University of Idaho, and the Latok County Sheriff's Office for their assistance. And I especially want to thank the community of Moscow for their outpouring of support through this incredibly difficult time. <clears throat> Today, I'm gonna to recap in brief what we know. I'm gonna provide some new information and I'm going to address some rumors. On the evening of November 12th and into the early morning hours of November 13th, Kaylee and Madison arrived home at approximately 1.45 a.m. after visiting a local bar and a street food vendor. Ethan and Zana were also out in the community at Sigma Chai, and they arrived home at approximately 1.45 a.m. Two surviving roommates who were also out in the community arrived home at approximately 1 a.m. Later, on the morning of November 13th, at 11.58 a.m., a 911 call was placed. <clears throat> the call reported an unconscious person. The call originated from inside the residence and a surviving roommate's cell phone was used. During that call, the dispatcher spoke to multiple people who were on scene. Moscow police officers responded and found two victims, two on the second floor and two on the third floor of 1122 King Road. The results of autopsies indicated that the four were stabbed multiple times and were likely asleep during the attack. Some had defensive wounds and there was no sign of sexual assault. We do not believe the following individuals were involved. The two surviving roommates, the male seen in a grub truck video uh, circulating on the internet, a private party who drove Kaylee and Madison home, any of the individuals who spoke to the dispatcher on the 911 call. We're also aware of a male whom Madison and Kaylee had called 
several times the morning of November 13th, and we do not suspect that individual. Detectives have canvassed the neighborhoods looking for evidence, physical evidence, video surveillance, and they've contacted numerous residents to see if anybody may have seen or heard anything. They continue requesting tips that can be sent to our tip line or called into our tip line. The specific areas that we're interested in are detailed on maps on our city website and our Facebook page. But as stated earlier, generally south of Taylor Avenue to Palouse River Drive and the area west of US 95 over to the Arboretum. We have heard mention that Kaylee stated she may have had a stalker. Detectives have been looking into that and to this point have been unable to corroborate the statement, although we continue to seek information and tips regarding that report. No suspects have been named or arrested, and we continue looking for what we believe to be a fixed blade knife used in the murders. We have not released the names of any of the subjects who spoke on the 911 call, and we have not released the call itself. Any online reports of the victims being tied and gagged are not accurate. Regarding the resources that we've put forth in this investigation, Moscow Police Department has four detectives, 24 patrol officers, and five support staff dedicated to this investigation. The FBI has 22 investigators in Moscow and 20 additional agents assigned in various locations, as well as two members of the Behavioral Analysis Unit. The Idaho State Police has 20 investigators, a public information team, a forensic services and crime scene team, and 15 uniformed troopers who have been valuable in helping provide uh, community patrols and safety patrols. We very much appreciate their support. This is our highest priority. It will remain our highest priority. We owe that to the families. At this time, I would like to introduce Colonel Kedrick Wills from the Idaho State Police. So I think had they come out that succinct and that clear day one, they would have, uh, alleviated a lot of the problems that they're having right now. But I think from what I could see, I think early on there was someone from the political world was pushing their buttons yeah. and yeah. telling them what to say. And as a result, they put out the wrong message. And that they didn't want to cause a panic right away. And I think that that the, probably the mayor had something to do with that because he was the one that was out in front saying, you know, it was targeted, crime of passion, blah, blah, blah. And I think that was the wrong thing to do, Billy, 100%. Uh, they should have uh, maybe pulled back a little bit, taken a deep breath, and really examined what they had in, in front of them before they made those statements. Absolutely. Carmen, thank you for the uh, – Carmen Czar, thank you for $21 super sticker. Very much appreciated. Guys, I'd like to call out folks with some of their questions. Uh uh, uh, Amber Gloria, would it be ill-perceived if they ask anyone who has been in the house to come in on their own for DNA to help rule out? No, it wouldn't be, uh, Amber. So. Uh, it would be considered helping with the investigation. And if you want to, you can turn it down. You could say, no, I'm not giving my DNA. Fine. That's it. And uh, 
We ask people all the time for a DNA sample. And again, they can turn us down and we don't consider them a suspect. Some people, they, they want to know, well, what is this going to be used for? Is it, How long is it going to be used? Is this putting me in CODIS? You know, and people may not want it for that very, very reason. And if a person is strongly suspected of being involved, if there's other evidence, then you can get a court order to get DNA sample from a person. But again, like you pointed out, Billy, if you have nothing to do with it, you're completely innocent given a DNA sample. It does remain on file. Uh, that is one of the things that makes a lot of people apprehensive about it. But if you're not in the criminal world, I don't think it's going to be an issue. And uh, again, it, it might raise a little bit of a red flag if somebody says no, but I'd want to go further and ask them why question them. Maybe they have uh, you know, what, what seems like a logical reason not to want to give it. But again, if that person is really in the suspect pool, we're going to get the DNA one way or the other, even if we have to get it from something they discard, let's say a cigarette or water bottle, things like that. Dog Defender. I don't know. What did George say that you're responding to? Uh, I'll try to find. Anyway, I agree, but most crime enthusiasts just can't handle not knowing. My husband was on a murder a week ago. I knew detail and location. I watched people spread false info for 72 hours. You know, yeah, people... They spread uh, misinformation. Look how many people. Oh, well, even th there was a, a a broadcast reporter. I won't say what channel he was from, and he repeated something that the chief said, but he erroneously repeated it. He just said, "Oh, you said she was a witness." He goes, "I never said that." Right. So if that chief would have let that go, that would have became the narrative. But he stopped him right. He goes, "I never said that. You just said that." So you got to be very careful in these press conferences with how they disseminate the information because the information, you know, that the, the big information of they were bound and gagged. No, they slammed the door on that very quickly. That is not true. Where did you get that from? And you could see even in, in, in some of the chat, some of the other uh, YouTube channels, the content creators, they put stuff out there. I mean, I've seen a lot of very competent um, content creators on here saying that they think this is a serial killer. And I'm not getting that. And when you put that out there, sometimes you make the police uh, that are investigating it, you make their job more difficult because now the press is going with that narrative. Well, have you been checking to see if this is a serial killing? Now they have to do 20,000 more steps of investigation to slam the door on that. You heard that attorney that was on Fox 5 with that Washington, D.C., uh, homicide detective, he was like, that's a distraction. Let's work on this case. Yeah. You know? yeah. And, I, and I find in this case, he's right. He's totally right. The reason I'm not uh, in the uh, ballpark of serial killer too is because a serial killer would not have just randomly picked that location, be able to get in and get out and get away. They would have had to do what we call a recon. They would have had to case the location and there would have been people that would have saw this person in the area. There'd be a little bit more information. I think, is it possible? Anything's possible at this point. Cause we don't have a person in custody that committed this horrible, horrible crime, this quadruple homicide. But 
when you look at it, uh, the facts, I always believe in keeping it simple. You have to keep it simple. You have to stay with what you have in front of you, wherever the evidence leads you, wherever it takes you. Don't go off on these conspiracy theories because a lot of times you'll get caught in the weeds. You'll get, you know, you get far into the jungle of conspiracy and it's just not the right thing to do. You need to be going where the facts take you. Um, I, I, misinformation and conspiracy theories and, and erroneous information that's put out, and homicide one time where a guy was shot. He was shot once in the hand. It went through, hit him in the face. The second shot, they shot him in the head. He, his body wasn't found. It was the winter time. He was in the trunk of a car for six weeks. Now, when we got the body and we did the whole crime scene, we told the family we believed he was uh, shot in the hand. It hit him in the face. The second shot in the head that he didn't suffer. That was one of the things that the family was concerned about. However, two days later, three days later, we go to the wake and the family's very upset. The funeral director that did the body that prepared the body for uh, for the funeral, told him that he was beaten up, that the whole side of his body was all purple from getting beaten up with a baseball bat. They thought we were lying to him. There was a thing called lividity. The body was laying on one side for that six weeks that it was in the trunk of the car in the winter. The blood pooled on that side, and it looked like bruising. It wasn't. We had to straighten out the funeral director, and we had to straighten out the family. So again, erroneous information is being put out there. It has to stop. It happens in every case. You have to just be able to filter through all of that and just move forward and take the case where the facts and the evidence take you. You know, folks, I think that it's not fair um, for the the big networks to be beating down on this small police department with all their power and all their influence. Oh, Moscow. Why? Where are we getting? It's a narrative out there. Oh, the, the crime scene is a mess. Where did that come from? You know, I want to know who's who's putting that out there. That's a mess. How do you know? Did you have you been collecting the evidence? You know, uh, maybe the fact that a, a reporter came and said, oh, you should expand this this crime scene, make it larger. You know, the, the head investigators, the, well, the case detective usually is the one who decides how large the crime scene is. And a lot of the crime scene can always be expanded or it can be brought in, diminished, you know, and that's the decision of the case detective. But I think the police department here, the Moscow police department, it's a small police department. They haven't had a murder in seven years. So the big bad networks are beating, beating on them because they think they can. And they're bringing all these, you know, talking heads with credentials, these FBI um, behavioral analysis people. I just like to remind people, they had some guy on the other day on a channel. He was, they were giving him credit for catching the Unabomber. He didn't catch the Unabomber, nor did his information. A phone call from the guy's brother did. So, like, right. that's false information that the, the network put out. You want to see horrendous um, behavioral analysis work? Look at the Beltway Sniper. They said he was a white male, 35. He was black male, 17. So, like, come on. All of these people have these credentials. But sometimes they're what they predict is as good or as bad as the next person. They're supposedly using science, but is it really a science? Is behavioral analysis based on what occurred here? Is it really a science? I think we can look at some of it, but to accurately predict who it is, then you know, that maybe you need a crystal ball, you know. But I think it's not fair, you know. When the, the the big bad press goes in and says this guy solved the you know and no he didn't 
<laughs> you know, he didn't. Don't tell that if it's not true, you know. Bill, how many times do we say on this show that it's not one person that solves any case? There's so many people involved in murder investigation. As I've said before, from the first phone call that goes to 911, that's part of the investigation. The first offers on the scene, the, the EMS that pronounces them dead. There's so many people involved in it. And again, sometimes there is that one detective, that, that one investigator that does uncover a piece of evidence that puts the whole puzzle together. Yes, that's true. But there's never just one person that solves it from beginning to end. So again, uh, you pointed that out. I think that, you know, you got just got to stick with the facts and, and just go where the facts take you, where the investigation takes you. Keep it simple. I always say that. Keep it simple, but that old saying, it's really the best way to investigate these cases. Uh, conspiracy theories lead you off into the woods someplace. Well, you know, just two weeks in to say this is a serial killer. Uh, you know, I don't see how anyone can say that. Two weeks in, a month in, maybe two months in, and you got more information, more of the evidence is back. Then maybe you can lean toward that. But now I think we got to go with where the evidence is taking us. When the leads slow down, that's the time to do re-interviews, re-canvas. Uh, if I have to canvas a location three and four times, we did a canvas on a homicide case six months later, knocked on the neighbor's door where the, uh, it had taken place in the, in the housing projects. She pulled us into the apartment to tell us. We had spoke to her on the day of the homicide, pulled us in and gave up the murderer. So you never know. You have to just stay at it, stay with it, and it'll come to a conclusion. This all began last Sunday, November 13th, on day one when Moscow police responded to a house on King Road for a report of an unconscious person. There, they found four people dead inside. As police investigated, the University of Idaho issued a vandal alert for students to shelter in place because of a homicide investigation. It was later lifted and the school canceled Monday classes. On Monday, day two, Moscow police identified the victims as Ethan Chapin, Zana Kernodal, Kaylee Gonzalez, and Madison Mogan. Police still did not say how or when they died. Tuesday marked day three. That's when we learned police now believed an edged weapon like a knife was used in what they called an isolated and targeted attack. Students at U of I also returned back to class. On Wednesday, day four, after days of near silence, Moscow police and the University of Idaho hosted their first press conference. Police confirmed the weapon used was a knife and it had not been recovered. They also said there was no suspect and they could not say there was no threat to the community. However, police still believed it was an isolated and targeted attack. We are looking at everyone. Um, we are every tip we get, every lead we get. There's no one that we're not going to talk to. There's no one we're not going to interview. There's no one that we're not going to look into. Day five was Thursday and authorities released the autopsy report. According to the Latah County coroner, the manner of death was stabbing, making this a murder investigation. On Friday, day six, Moscow police released a map and a timeline of the victim's last known whereabouts. The Latah County coroner stated all four victims were likely asleep, some with defensive wounds. Each were stabbed multiple times. Moscow police shared they did not believe the surviving roommates, nor the man observed in the grub truck surveillance video were involved in the murders. On Saturday, day seven, Moscow police shared more details, including the fact that the 911 call came from inside the house on the cell phones of one of the surviving roommates. We also learned the victims were found on the second and third floor of the house. On days eight and nine, Moscow police released an update on the murder investigation, adding clarification on some misinformation on social media. And right now, police held another press conference today addressing more rumors and laying out additional resources the state of Idaho is providing for the investigation.
So that's one of the most important things also is like, I think this clears up a lot. Look at all the questions everyone was asking that have been asked and answered now. They wanted to know where were the, the murders, what floors did the murders take place? That was answered second and the third floor, right? Uh, where were the other two roommates that survived? They were on the first floor. Those were, of, of course, questions that everyone would have that they'd be chomping at the bit to know. And that's why I think that the uh, Moscow, uh, Moscow, Moscow, I, I pre it's apparently it's not pronounced Moscow like in the Soviet Union, it's pronounced Moscow. 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 So apparently, you know, uh, that was the information that everyone needed to know very early on. And when the police didn't provide that, it caused a lot of angst among both the, the public and the press who's covering this case. They needed to know that. Now they know it. And now the police have been more transparent. They're putting forth more information. You know, this case has to be the victimology and talking to the friends and expanding that uh, the the amount of interviews you do. That's the most important thing after the forensic evidence. Uh, the forensic evidence in this case is undoubtedly the most important thing and will result in, in a perpetrating get ident getting identified. However, speaking to all the friends, all, uh, all the acquaintances, all the people with who the girls worked, they worked at a Greek restaurant. Speak to all the employees there. You got to speak to everyone. There's a potential for one of them to encounter someone maybe, you know, from the community that works at that restaurant. Has that been done? I can't answer. Should it be done? Absolutely. That has to be followed up on. That is, this, as I said, the second most important part of this investigation is the interviews and interrogation of all the potential witnesses, and that's after the forensic evidence. Absolutely, Billy. And again, uh, to speak about the two people that survived that were in the first floor location, um, I had a homicide where, uh, a triple homicide uh, by stabbing, where three people were killed, and uh, there wasn't a very bloody crime scene, believe it or not. Multiple 25, 30 stab wounds in the chest. However, there's a thing called the sunken chest wound where uh, the person bleeds inside. The lungs fill up rather quickly and the person is unable to talk, scream. So I think that accounts for that part of it. However, it does look like there was some type of a struggle with at least one or perhaps more of the victims in this case regarding the defensive wounds. So a, uh, uh, an experienced crime scene investigator like an Ed Wallace that we talk about because he's unbelievably uh, an expert in this field uh, will be able to examine the crime scene over a period of time and figure out what took place first. Uh, was there someone trying to escape? You can tell that by, uh, you know, if there's blood dripping in certain directions, cast the way that we talked about, sp uh, spatter. So again, all of those things, you can kind of put it all together and come up with the uh, chronological uh, part of the events, how they took place. And again, I would be looking for entrance and exit as well. Uh, if the perpetrator entered and exited through the same uh, location and, you know, it does look like this is a bloody crime scene. So that perhaps there's some blood drippings from uh, the perpetrator running out of the location. And again, that's why I think they expanded that crime scene in the back of the house based on uh, that Fox, uh, contributor Ted Williams, a former homicide detective from Washington, right after he uh, 
broadcast that, that he felt that the leaves in the back of the building weren't uh, disturbed, uh, that they should, uh, you know, examine that area for possible evidence. Sure enough, they came out, they uh, did do a search in that area and they expanded the crime scene out to the back of the home. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you're not subscribed and you like real crime stories from a police perspective, Go on our YouTube, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell. If you want to subscribe to us, we have a Patreon. If you want to contribute to us with three different levels. And we also have a YouTube channel memberships with five different levels. And you see the folks in the font. They're part of our YouTube channel members and they contribute to us greatly. Phil, you want to take care of the or- Sure. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of the fence. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe is a big supporter of Police Off the Cuff, and he happens to be a great criminal defense attorney and a great human being. Folks, I just want to go into the um, the chat a little bit and uh, read some of your comments. Mercy K, here's something I have been thinking too. Many say the killer may not have known there were two downstairs, but isn't that a typical Idaho home? They knew. You know, I that's is that what you're telling me? It's typical to have a, a, a first floor. I mean, this was a big house. I think it was over two thousand square feet, and it had six bedrooms. And it was the configuration of it was a little strange. It was almost like an extension was built on after the fact. So uh, do they know? We won't know that till he's caught. You know, I believe coroner said sloppy with different words. You know, a coroner is not a crime scene investigator, really. A coroner is an elected position. The autopsies were conducted by pathologists who are MDs. So I don't know how the coroner can go say the police work is sloppy when she's not really involved in that. It's an elected position, coroner. In fact, if you ever listen to Barbara Butcher, she's a proponent of that whole system being uh, dissolved and going with the medical examiner system and not a coroner. Because there's there's areas of this um, of the country that their coroners are just, you know, just elected officials with no training whatsoever. So uh, I don't know how where she gets off. There should that. definitely be a national standard when it comes to that, because again, you have an area like uh, Moscow, uh, Idaho here, where there wasn't a homicide in seven years. So if again, a person doesn't have experience in the field, they might miss something. So again, I, I do think that uh, that's a great point that Barbara Butcher made. There should be a national standard. Absolutely. Dog Defender. Thanks, Bill. I appreciate you reiterating the conspiracies and the rabbit holes. It's very frustrating, too, the detectives and DA trying to solve these cases and bring it all the way to conviction. You're right, Dog Defender. You know, one thing I just want to say is I have pretty good credentials. All right. I have, you know, 27 years in the NYPD, 16 years in the detective bureau, 10 in homicide. Pretty in New York City, the number one police department in this nation. I don't always say I'm right or make these predictions like I got a swami hat on and a crystal ball because you can't. And and every one of these people that are making these predictions, I don't care what their credentials are, 
whether they were a former second in charge of the FBI or the this or that, they make mistakes too, and they don't have a crystal ball. And it's things, one of the best things I ever learned on the police department is things are not always as they seem. And that's that's the, the 100% truth. And if you think you're a, you know, you're a soothsayer or you're a swami and you can predict these things, then, you know, you should be a multimillionaire. They should be pulling you in on every, every uh, open case there is. Only investigators with intimate knowledge of this investigation will know the true direction that it's going in. And I've had the occasion working on a homicide. We were very certain we were zeroing in on a suspect. All of a sudden, the phone rang. Uh, information came in. It was somebody else. We were targeting uh, a person that was identified in a photo array. Uh, three or four witnesses positively identified this person. At the end of the day, when we caught the right person, if you looked at the photos side by side, they were almost identical. Uh, but we wound up with the right person. And again, they don't. No one knows the true invest, uh, the true direction of this investigation, other than the people on the inside. So again, all these conspiracy theories, you have to just be able to uh, put them to the side and go with the most logical. Uh, based on experience. And that's what we try to do here. We're going based on, we're giving our, our opinions on things based on homicide experience, investigative experience, almost 50 years between the two of us. Lionel Cortez, the perp using a knife instead of a gun to kill multiple people, makes it obvious that this wasn't just some angry, rejected guy. He's a psychopath. Uh, you know, I would agree with you. I mean, anyone that can kill four innocent people with a knife, he's missing a few a few brain cells for sure. I think he's going to be familiar with the knife, probably going to be someone with a hunting background. That's my opinion based on the fact that we know there is a big uh, hunting community in that area. So again, someone to take a big Bowie knife and slaughter four people, that's not going to be your average Joe. That's going to be someone with, uh, you know, that was familiar with the use of a knife. I think in my opinion, um, Again, uh, may not be his first rodeo, but again, this doesn't sound like this person is in the CODIS database, which is the DNA database. Chris Hoyle, is it common for the police chief to provide a list of people who are not suspects? No, not really. Not really. But because there's all of this uh, interest, there's all of this press, this is a, a, not just the national, this is an international story that they're, they're probably being told to be much more transparent than they were earlier on in this case. And that's the reason they're releasing this information. Well, there's the obvious is uh, someone who's left alive in the home is obviously going to be considered possibly a suspect. So they want to clear those people. They cleared that person that was by the food truck. I don't think uh, that was bad. I think that was good. That's just so, you know, this person might've been identified. Maybe someone's going to try and do harm to that person. They can say, oh, I know who that is. He's the guy that killed those girls and go after them. And, you know, so again, uh, putting people at ease with stuff like that. I'm okay with that. Yeah, well, you know something, folks, I just want everyone to realize, too, and I'm not just trying to defend the Moscow Police Department, but, you know, does the NYPD make mistakes and not solve homicides, major, major homicides, take weeks? Yeah, it does. It happens. You know, people can't just say, solve this case. You need evidence, you know, and then you need a suspect and you need to methodically move along with the investigation. You can't just, you know, because people want it. I, I mean, I used to get people in the police department and say, oh, the chief's not going to like that. 
And I would be <laughs> like, I, I don't give a damn what he likes. That's what I'm telling you is, is what's going on. Like I had to somehow invent something that, that would make the chief happy. You know, <laughs> people have to realize that any case specifically uh homicide in New New York Police Department, in the NYPD, in the New York area, uh, it's scrutinized scrutinized all along the way from, you know, the bosses to the district attorney's office, uh, you know, and then you go into the trial phase, you have hearings on evidence and you have defense attorneys, and then you have to get before a jury at some point, and you have to convince 12 people beyond a reasonable doubt that this person is guilty of this crime. And based on what I just laid out, that's a very high standard. So again, uh, a lot of it is scrutinized and you're not going to just go on it for women and say, well, this is the guy that did it and put somebody in handcuffs. That's not how it works. You have to have solid evidence. And again, like I said, prosecutor's office is involved in the murder uh, investigation, usually pretty early on in the investigation. They're, uh, you know, you go into them for subpoenas or search warrants, different things like that. They're going to want to know what's going on in the case. And they have to now take that information presented to a judge to get a subpoena uh, signed or a, a search warrant signed. So again, a lot of these things, there's a lot of checks and balances in place, a lot of scrutiny on homicide investigation. So they're, they're doing their due diligence in this case, the investigators, I'm sure of it. And we just got to hope and pray that there's going to be a conclusion sooner rather than later. Barbara Ann, thinking something occurred at the bar requiring the hoodie guy to determine he had to stand by until they went home. Your thoughts? You know something, all the Barbara Ann, all the information you put out there, the police have that same information. And I would think that they would be all over that and they would be interviewing the person who you're referring to. So I, I don't think uh, that that person, if he was a person of interest or a suspect, they would have him in there and they would be comparing their evidence against him. So at this point, I don't uh, think... What I think Barbara's saying is that maybe there was some type of an altercation in the bar and this guy was like, uh, you know, like escorting them home or something like that. It's possible. And it sounds like they've determined who that person is. They've identified him and they've interviewed him. So if he did give that type of information, I'm sure they're on top of it. No, absolutely. Phil, uh, we're at a, um, an hour and five minutes. Final words. Final words. Listen. Everyone has to be patient. This is going to be a, a painstaking investigation. Um, I am very certain that there's going to be a conclusion to it, whether it's tomorrow or if it's months from now, I think it will be solved. Uh, let's hope it's sooner that, rather than later. Keep these people, these families in your thoughts and prayers. I can't even imagine what these families are going through. I have three college-age daughters, all three in college right now. And again, uh, I know if my kid went to that school, my kid would be doing online courses, would not be going back into that area. I don't feel that it's safe at this point since the killer is still at large. Again, stay safe, everybody. And, uh, you know, just keep these these families in your thoughts and prayers. Folks, yeah, I just, uh, I ask you to have patience and to look, I guess part of being a real crime um, subscriber is to, is to hypothesize and theorize and have your own theories, of course. And no one's telling you you can't. Absolutely. But, you know, I, I just see I see a lot of people that go out there that are even content uh, creators getting involved in the investigation. That's absolutely not their uh, their role, you know. And again, they can give their opinions and their educated opinions and all of that online. But let's leave the investigation to the investigators and the pros that are 
handling this case. Guys, God bless. Thank you for tuning in today. Have a great day. Stay safe, everyone. Not bad. Yeah. We went off the air with 1667. That's pretty good.